The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Sean and Rudy, the ushers, uh, are there more bulletins? Could you put your hand up if you don't have a bulletin and you'd like one? There's a yellow insert in the bulletin, and I'd like to uh, read something with you from that. So just the ushers go down the aisles, and maybe there aren't too many more. If you do want one, just raise your hand. Otherwise, you can share with your neighbor, I guess. Okay. So on the, on the top of that insert, there's a prayer for the new year, I've called it. And uh, I would invite you to uh, read that prayer with me and make that, uh, personalize that, if you may, if you will, uh, and you can. And um, so just read with me and let's pray to God. Gracious and loving God. It is with thankfulness that I hear your call to become Christ-like. Something deep within my heart stirs from its heavy slumber. The memory of something I was to have been, but am not, yet could still be, flits on the fringes of my consciousness. O loving God, stir up this hunger in my heart until it becomes the all-consuming passion of my life. Amen. This morning we begin a topical series uh, that you can see reflected in the new banners that are up front that I want to thank Giersch Manuel for his uh, creativity in, in doing that, and uh, I know others have worked with him on that, and so we thank the Lord for artist, artistic people. Uh, equipping the body of Christ is the theme of this series. It's not an expositional series like our custom is to go through books of the Bible, but today and starting today till Easter, we're going to be going through uh, a topical series about equipping the body of Christ, and it really is in line with our theme and our our purpose of nurturing followers of Christ through healthy relationship. Jesus does not want a dismembered body on the earth, but a member, uh, a body that is connected, contributing, and committed to His cause, and the problem is, is that we're broken, And how are we going to be a connected, committed, contributing uh, member of the body of Christ if all of us are broken members of the body of Christ? And how is it that the healing that God wants to do is taking place? And so that's really what this series is all about. And we're going to be accompanying ourselves with with the, the the book by Don Cousins that many in our church have read called Experiencing Leadership. Um, We are going to be inviting all of our life groups and different Bible study groups and so on to invite to to study that uh, series with us starting in February and in March. We're going to be going through those those six chapters through a participant's guide. Uh, What Doug handed out earlier, the hushers handed out and uh, made available uh, is in the foyer. There's various opportunities listed in here how you might want to get involved. There's opportunities in homes. There's opportunities here in the church. There's different evenings of the week that it's going to be offered. And I hope that you can make yourself, uh, you know, find time to get into one of those. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an opportunity for us to rally together to talk specifically about what God requires of us. Today we're beginning, and I'd like you to imagine in your mind this huge hopper or or some kind of a funnel system, and we're starting right at the top with the big idea, the the biggest thing that we're going to be looking at, and we're going to slowly come down to where we're talking about our own lives and God's purposes for us as individuals. 
But today we're really going to be talking about a very broad theme. And so that Jesus Christ is, is understood as central, I'm going to read a passage to you from Colossians chapter 1. If you have a Bible or some other device that has the scripture on it, um, Colossians chapter 1, and uh, we're going to read verses 15 to 20. And um, I'd like you to listen along as I read it. Colossians chapter 1, listen to how Paul the Apostle stands on tiptoe to try and declare the excellencies of our Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, And so Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse 15. Would you stand with me if you're able to and listen to the Word of God? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Amen. You may be seated. May God bless his word. Deep within each one of our hearts is the knowledge that we were created for something more. Vance Havner says it this way. He says, whatever else is or is not true about us or humanity It is this, that we are not what God intended us to be. Alexander Pope describes it in more poetic ways. He says, created half to rise and half to fall, created Lord of all things, yet a prey to all, sole judge of truth, in endless error hurled, the glory, jest, and riddle of the world. Indeed, humanity is a riddle. For we are, a scripture tells us, created in the image of God after the likeness of God, as male and female with incredible worth and potential and dignity to reflect His glory, His image, His likeness. And there seems yet, in spite of that, to to be no limit to the depths of our depravity and how we evidence that sin in countless ways. The image of God has been tainted, marred, broken by sin. In some cases, beyond recognition. No limit to the twisted behavior that we're capable of. And the only hope that the scriptures hold out, the only hope that the scriptures hold out for a restoration of that image of God in humanity, in every broken life that we represent today, is that Jesus Christ came to restore, to redeem, and to heal. It is our hope. That's why we Christians make so much of Jesus, because he, he really is the answer. Uh, for all the world's issues. The the author William Golding was a writer who saw in man, quote, a being who manufactures evil the way a bee makes honey, unquote. In his classic novel, Lord of the Flies, Golding tells the story of the hell that a group of schoolboys make out of an island paradise. Over time, the boys degenerate into a group of savages bent on hurting and killing one another. 
A point of revelation comes in the story when Ralph, the central character, realizes their predicament and he says very soberly, he says, I'm afraid of us. I'm afraid of us. And I think that if we are honest, we're all afraid of us too. I think that if we have lived long enough, reflected deeply enough about our own capacity to hurt and be hurt, we've all wielded the sword that has hurt somebody else, and we've all been lacerated by the sword of someone else's sin, and that's why the Lord Jesus taught us to pray, Lord, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Indeed, only redemption in Christ addresses the fear of us. As we wade into the teaching of this day, which is a foundational sermon for the rest of the series, as we wade into this teaching, I want to share four examples of actual encounters that I've had prior to coming to this church. I do it to demonstrate that the broken, marred image of God in humanity has many faces. And I also do it because in each of the stories that were heart-wrenching for me at the time, they exhibit an aspect of the image of God that was never fully lost, even in the lives that were so very broken by sin. So example one, I first met Fred, not his real name, when he stopped at my office. He was a friendly sort, the biggest beard I'd ever seen. He told me the reason for his visit was because he was an alcoholic and he had to do the fifth step with the clinic that he was walking with. The clinic, or the fifth step, is that, that stage where you, as a human being, confess to another human being all the wrongs of your life. So we set up an appointment for Fred, and a week or so later he came back, and for two hours I listened to him describe his life as a sailor in going to various ports around the world in debauchery and immorality. Fred's story was a raw portrayal of sin's destruction beginning with a broken childhood and leading into broken adulthood. By the grace of God, I saw some changes in Fred. He actually began to leave alcohol alone and other substances. He, he began attending church. He, he came to faith in Jesus, I believe was baptized, even got married to a Christian woman. And we saw some changes in Fred. He started being part of a church closer to his home, and there was a man there that was a mentor to him, a very mature Christian man. And a few years passed, and I thought he seemed to be doing better. But one day his mentor told me that Fred wasn't doing very good. He separated from his wife. He became reclusive. And as long as he stopped by seeing me, near where his work was, my office. As long as he stopped by every so often, I thought there was hope. But then I realized that there was something very wrong with Fred. There were some hidden monsters that he wouldn't want to talk about much, but symptomized themselves with depression or the use of pornography. And one day, as he visited me in my office for a few minutes, he, things seemed too right. And uh, he left saying he was okay until two days later, a police officer from our church phoned me and said that Fred had taken his own life. Example two, John and Mary seemed like a fun-loving, spirit-led couple with a beautiful family. They began attending our church where I was pastoring when their three children were teenagers. 
John had a strong witness among a group of guys that he played hockey with, regular Bible study guy leading in prayer and so on. Mary was a very involved woman in Christian women's groups in our city. It came as a complete shock when I began to see their marriage crumble over a period of months. Pat and I, along with some other elders and their wives in our church, tried walking with them, guiding them through this difficult season. But Mary was given to over-spiritualizing almost everything and blaming John for a lack of leadership in the home. And John became such an angry man, blaming Mary for her lack of submission and her fake spirituality. Together, they drained the life out of the elders of our church and in the end, divorced and moved on, leaving their children very broken. Example three, as a young pastor, I had many seniors in my congregation who felt like mothers and fathers to me. I enjoyed a cup of tea with them, hearing their stories, having prayer. These visits were like a step back in time, a break from the pressures of routine pastoral life. But I wasn't prepared for what I would hear from Margaret, a widow of 15 years and a faithful member of the church. One day as we were listening, as we were talking over tea, she wanted me to know something that she had never told anyone before in her entire life and proceeded to tell me about a prolonged sexual relationship that she had with a married man while she was still a single woman in her early 20s. She had never told even her husband throughout their entire married life. She had carried this secret for over 50 years until that afternoon she shared it with me. I felt like we were on holy ground as we began to process her past in the presence of Jesus Christ, a merciful God who has power to heal broken lives. Example four, Winston grew up as the youngest in his family with three older siblings. His brother, a member of our church, told me that Winston was always different. After high school, he moved to another city and it was not a shock to any family member a couple of years later when he informed them that he was gay. But it was harder for them a little while later when he had a sex change and arrived home as a woman named Alice. I first met Alice in a hospital room where she was dying of AIDS as a result of prostitution, trying to earn enough money to pay for hormone treatment. Nothing in my seminary training had remotely prepared me for this encounter. But the family had asked me to go and she was willing to receive the visit and so I went. I had no idea what to say where to begin, but we developed a friendship over the months that followed, and I began to see her as a beautiful but broken person. Alice died, and I officiated her funeral. I had one significant conversation with her that seemed pivotal. She had wanted me to read Psalm 23, and it opened the door wide to a discussion about humanity's brokenness and about God and about Christ and true faith. I am not certain, but I sense that Alice had an encounter with Jesus, the only one that I knew that could heal her brokenness. No doubt as I share these stories that cover a wide range of human need and brokenness, that people came to your mind of your experience that are also broken by sin. And in each of these encounters, I witnessed firsthand the tangled mess that sin had made out of what God said was very good in Genesis 1 and 31. And I felt that I was an extension of Christ, reaching out to people that were broken by sin. And, and in each case, I also sensed 
that in their brokenness, I saw something about my brokenness. And I saw in that moment that we were all more alike than we are different. Paul K. Jewett writes that it is the doctrine of the image of God in humanity that distinguishes the biblical view of humanity from all other anthropologies existing. James Houston says that true humanity is most truly understood not in any other discipline but theology, for the scriptures tell us what is man. The doctrine of creation in the image of God, the imago Dei as it's called in Latin, is the starting point in addressing our deepest needs and in defining our deepest and highest purposes for which we were created. And so we go back to the beginning in Genesis 1, verse 26, where it says that God created man in his own image and in his own likeness. He created the male and female. Genesis 2, 7, that the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man, humanity, became a living soul. I love what Paul Brand writes about that scripture in his book called In His Image. He says, when I heard that verse as a child, I imagined Adam lying on the ground, perfectly formed, but not yet alive, with God leaning over him and performing a sort of mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Now I picture it very differently. I assume that Adam was already biologically alive. The other animals needed no special puff of oxygen, nitrogen, and carbon dioxide to start breathing, so why should man? The breath of God now symbolized for me a spiritual reality. I saw Adam as alive but possessing only an animal vitality. Then God breathes into him a new spirit and infills him with his own image, and Adam becomes a living soul, not just a living body. For God's image is not an arrangement of skin cells or a physical shape, but rather an inbreathed spirit. John Calvin, writing about the image of God, believed that this doctrine gives humans inestimable value. He said, people are not sticks and stones, nor are they beasts, for they possess immortal souls, which give them preeminent place the highest place in all of the created order. Even in our alienation from God because of sin, we yet bear the imprint of our origin and the potential of our future, for we are created in the image of God. Now, I know that we could take weeks to talk about what does it mean to be in the image of God as humans. It has to do with a rational faculty, a volitional ability, an emotional sensitivity, a conscience, a personal being capable of relationship with others in a personal and intimate way. All of this and so much more is what animal life and plant life and other life forms do not have. This is the image of God in humanity. But let me just unpack a few implications of the image of God. Number one. The image of God in humanity is absolutely universal for all of the human race, and it makes all of human life more precious than any other life form. Secondly, no one is born with greater or lesser capacity to reflect God's image. I wish I had more time for this, but right away I think maybe some of you might not be able to be in agreement with me on that one. 
No one is born with a greater or lesser capacity to reflect God's image. And some of you think, well, yeah, what about fetal alcohol syndrome? What about all these symptomatic things that are a result of someone else's sin that even takes place within the mother's womb? I believe that no one is born with a lesser or greater capacity to reflect the image of God. Thirdly, the image of God is not lost because of the fall. It is tarnished. There are some theologies that will tell you it has been absolutely lost and only in Christ is it found. I believe the scriptures teach us that it is tarnished, tainted, twisted beyond even recognition sometimes. It is never lost. You might have a hard time believing that when you look at ISIS. But I believe it. Fourthly, since we bear the image of God, we belong to God. We're not our own. We are responsible individuals. We belong to a God that is going to give us an accountability day for the decisions we make and the things that rule over us and how we treat our bodies. Fifthly, we experience what it means to be human best in relationship to our Creator. No matter how cultured or uneducated a person might be, They are most fully human when they are in relationship with their creator, God, through Jesus Christ. Sixthly, there is a sanctity to human life that extends beyond anyone's physical or mental abilities. Their agilities, their intelligence, their race, their gender, their age, whatever other human factors might classify people, all of that Level is leveled off with the doctrine of the image of God, for there is a sanctity about human life that comes from an understanding of how God created us. And that is why any approach to abortion and euthanasia and assisted suicide that does not begin with the imago Dei, the image of God, will come to different conclusions on all of those subjects. And then finally, I want to say as, a, as, a, as an implication that this doctrine helps us define sin in the most simplistic way by simply understanding that sin is continuing to live in reversal of the role that we have as image bearers. We are called to fulfill what God has created for us, and though the original image has been defaced and marred and mutilated, The remnant of it still exists. And so as we think about the four examples I shared with you, I believe that the doctrine of the image of God has huge help in healing every one of those souls that I mentioned in my stories. I think I've told you this story before. I just thought of it this morning about the story of the statue of David, that piece of marble that was sitting in a rock quarry and... and, uh, the sculptor found it, and, and we're told that Michelangelo, when he saw it, uh, it had been rejected. The story goes, I don't know, I can't verify it, but the story goes that Donatello had rejected that stone. It was in the garbage heap, and, and uh, Angelo had gone and studied the stone and, and said, send it to my studio. There is an angel imprisoned in this block of stone, and I will set it free. 
That's really the picture of what Jesus Christ is doing in redemption and in restoration of humanity on this earth. He finds us with the overlaid heaviness that sin has brought upon our lives, every one of us with the brokenness of our history, of our childhood, of our, of our growing up years, of things that have been, the things that we've sinned against others with and the things that have been sinned against upon us and so on. And, and every one of us carries this huge heaviness that Jesus Christ wants to chip away at and reveal the image of Jesus, the image of God that yet is in each one of us. And so let's take a look at the fourth and final point of the message this morning, which is called Redemption Restoring What Was Broken. Major Ian Thomas, in his book called The Indwelling Life of Christ, writes this. He says, For the first time since Adam fell into sin, there was on earth a man as God intended man to be. Talking about Jesus, obviously. He said, For the first time, for the first time since Adam, there was on earth a man, the way God intended man to be, Jesus, incredible. And, and in so doing, he is saying as well, of course, that we look at Jesus and we see everything we need to know, not only about God, but we see everything we need to know about real humanity, the God-man. When Jesus came to earth, he became a man in the fullest sense of the term. He lived as God wanted him to live. He did so in a way that not even Adam and Eve had done. For no discussion of the image of God is complete without noting that the true image of God is seen not in Adam and Eve prior to their fall, but in Christ, for only Christ can make God known. You see, when we open the pages of the New Testament and we start to study what the image of God means to Paul and others in, as authors in the New Testament, they do not take us back to the past, to what we might have been had Adam not fallen, but rather they point to the future of what we can be and will be because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished. And every life surrendered to Him will be Fulfilled. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, he says, We who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord. You see, it's this transformational process. That word in Greek is metamorphe. You know what that word's all about. It's this transformation that when you Invite Jesus Christ into your life having owned the marred mess of sin that's made out of you and you invite Jesus in, he begins to take your room, one room at a, at a, at a time, your life as a house, one room at a time, he begins to clean up that room and that house and he begins to make it a temple of God where his spirit dwells, where worship is part of and where, where the Lord is glorified and the reflection of the image of God that had been marred by sin begins to shine more and more brightly, increasingly, as Paul says. And it's, this is a transformation. It, it starts when we, we own our sin and brokenness. We face squarely the raw, ugly side of what we are. And in depending on Christ, we count on him to do in us and for us, and if you can accept it, as us, what only he can do. 
in us and for us and as us. You see, the Christian life is not an imitation of God, playing a part, acting a role. The Christian life is a participation in the divine nature, 2 Peter 1.4. It is a participation in something that is born within you, is absolutely by grace, that you cannot manipulate. And if you try to do that which only God can do, you will forever fail until you surrender, until you depend on Jesus to fulfill everything that Jesus was meant to do. And you fulfill everything you were called to do. In, six, in 1765, a book was published seven years after the author died. It's a very interesting story because ten years prior, two men had visited Jonathan Edwards in his home and, and asked him about the work he was doing. And he was working on the manuscript of the work that would become the book entitled the end for which God created the world. And they sat for two and a half days and listened to Jonathan Edwards read the manuscript, the end for which God created the world. Seven years after he died, it was published. This book shaped many, many people in his own day. And since then, in 1998, 18 years ago, John Piper wrote a book about the book, The End for Which God Created the World. And he talked about Jonathan Edwards, and he talked about how for 30 years in his ministry, John Piper's ministry, this book laid heavy upon him. And he writes in his book that it literally has put its stamp on every part of his life and ministry. And like all the writings of Jonathan Edwards, it, it, it depicts this continental divide of theology between the kind of theology that, that has rivers, all the rivers of the Bible and theology flowing towards humanity and man-centeredness, and the theology that has a rather a God-saturated focus, and it has all of the rivers of Bible theology flowing towards God-centeredness. Anything you read about Jonathan Edwards is saturated with God-centeredness. Let me read to you one excerpt from his book, The End for Which God Created the World, and then let me unpack it briefly. He says this, he writes, quote, It is manifest that the Scriptures speak on all occasions as though God made Himself His end in all His works. And as though the same being who is the first cause of all things were the supreme and last end of all things. Now, I know that if you're just hearing that for the first time, I mean, i got to look at it and i got to read it a few times to get it. I read The End for Which God Created the World several years ago. And I came out of it understanding and seeing the sheer logic, the precision in the logic and thought flow of Jonathan Edwards, even as this little quote demonstrates. So let me say, I think, what Jonathan Edwards said in that one sentence. 
He is saying basically that if you believe, as the scriptures teach, that God is the cause and fountain of all life and that human beings were indeed created in his image, then it flows naturally to look to God as well for the very end purpose for which you were created and to find in his grace and his power the means by which we can be redeemed, restored, and returned to fulfill the God-given goal for which He created us. Makes logical sense, right? If, on the other hand, you believe not in God as a cause of all life, if you do not believe in creation, you believe in theories of evolution, Big Bang or otherwise, then you logically must end up with determining that you must decide your own end, for it is an impersonal force and an undesigned force that has brought about your very existence. And therefore, it is quite open for you to fill in the blanks on you deciding what your life goal, passion, end is. And it fits very well with secular humanism. And it fits very well with anyone who is in a rebel heart state against God that does not want to say, I am responsible to a living, personal God who has done something that I have to answer for. No wonder that there's a spiritual force promoting evolutionism and downgrading anything to do with creationism. I'm not trying to pick on anyone here. I'm simply appealing to your logic. I want you to be consistent. Either tell me you believe in the creation account or don't tell me, but don't be inconsistent. And to me, it means that if you believe you were created by a loving, personal God, that in the words of David in Psalm 139, He knits you together in your mother's womb, that you were fearfully and wonderfully made. If you believe that, if that is true, then live for him and make it your goal to find out why he made you. Why are you on this earth? Why did he make you the way he made you? Made you? It has huge implications for the entire sermon series that we are entering. So when we come to talking about your spiritual gifts, we have to understand that's who God made you. And he made you with that spiritual gift with an end in view and a whole other network of people that that spiritual gift empowered through your carnal life, flesh life, was meant to impact. And when we talk about your passions, your interests, your abilities, your natural agilities, your thinking, the things that might be called one day as we study this, the zone of God's anointing in your life, that's not by chance the one who made you has made you for that purpose. And so this day, this is the theology on which we build everything else. We're all broken image bearers. We all are in need of wholeness. Every sinner has a future. Every saint has a past. And all of us can find hope in the one who alone is the image of the invisible God, who alone can repair what has been broken. We were made to worship, glorify God. And in doing so, we will find our highest joy in the words of Don Cousins, we're called to be faithful to him, to bear fruit, to find our highest fulfillment in him, to make him famous. Jonathan Edwards saw the image of God to be like a, like a water in a stream 
that somehow is exactly reflective of the fountain from which it came. Or like the sun rays on, a, on your face on a wonderful afternoon that are exactly like the sun that is so many million light years away. You see, that's the image of God in us. We are a reflection of God and everything that is about us and how we impact the world around us is a reflection of God and his personal, personal discipleship plan for every one of our lives. In conclusion, I just want to mention one thing before I end, and that is that I, I was doing a little bit of a word study this past week, and I was, I was very surprised to see that the etymology, the origin of the word passion, has its source in the same history of the word passive. <laughs> I would think, well, those two words should be opposites, shouldn't they? Passion and passive. And yet they both share the same root, and the root means this, able to be moved. Able to be moved. Well, that sounds like a passive thing, able to be moved, but it doesn't sound like passion until you understand that you as the creature, if you are going to be passionate about where God has wired you to be, and God, God has, has called you to be and do in your life purpose, then you need to be, like clay in his hands, able to be moved into his purposes for your life so that he can fulfill in and through you all the things for which he created you. Isn't that an incredible story? Isn't that an incredible God? That as we get to know Jesus Christ, who in all of his glory fully reflects who God is, he says, guess what? Through faith in him, he's living in you. He can live out his life as you. And you can begin to fulfill every purpose that God has for your life before you are laid in the grave and become simply a eulogy. I'd like the worship team to come, but let me pray just momentarily before they do. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace in our lives. And Father, I would ask you to just magnify the Son today. Magnify the Son, Jesus our Savior. Let him be so very sweet in our, in our mouths, precious in our thoughts, and that we might find that in him are all the source of all that we need, Lord, to be all that you've called us to be. And bless this sermon series and our study groups, Lord, that we might grow to understand more of the purposes you have for each one of us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We opened the service with the song Blessed Assurance. And the chorus was, this is my story. And for so long, we haven't known the power of that story or come to grips with it. And today we've heard an incredible message, tremendous amount of really the sense of what God sees in us, despite us. He doesn't have to be afraid of us, although we have to be afraid of us. He can change us. And I'd like to pray a very 
special blessing on you. One that for me is very astounding come from scripture. And it carries that theme with all of its greatness and all of its importance. Paul writes and says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit that in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have the power together with the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that goes beyond knowledge that you and I may be filled with all the fullness of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And now to him who's able to do immensely more than anything we can ask or even imagine, according to his power, that's at work within us, to him be the glory forever. Amen. This is our story.